0: Um, it's good to see all of you here on the last Sunday of this year. Um, I also just want to say, if you if you if you if you don't know me or if you're new here, my name is Stanley, and I serve as one of the elders here at Redeemer. Um, if you're not on the email or you're a guest, um, please feel free to fill out one of these cards, and we'll uh, keep you in the loop of all the things that are happening here at Redeemer. There's also a place for prayer requests, so if there's anything that's on your heart that we can be uh, in prayer with you or for you, um, please fill it out and put it out in the um, in the offering box and we'll definitely pray for you and follow up uh, if you um, would like to do so. So um, that's, I believe, all of the uh, things I need to remind you guys of. Uh, we are actually back in Mark chapter, Mark, in the book of Mark this week. As we finish our Advent series uh, leading up to Christmas, we're back in Mark and we'll be spending. Um, a time in Mark chapter 11 verses 1 through 11 this morning so feel free to turn to your Bibles there this morning uh, as we kind of look at Mark and so as we start back in Mark I believe it will take us up to Easter where we will it will coincide with the um, crucifixion and the resurrection so it will be uh, perfect timing assuming everything goes as planned Um, but one of the things, uh, kind of, as we look at this morning, I wanted to kind of just—I uh, was just thinking as I was reflecting on this uh, on this passage um, recorded in Mark chapter eleven. Around last year, this time, the elders um, here at Redeemer had gotten together, and we were um, kind of looking towards what 2020 had um, in store for us, what God was going to do here at, uh, at Redeemer. 2019 had been such a fruitful year for us; we were really thankful. And so that uh, kind of encouraged us to continue to plan and think and pray to see how God would work at Redeemer in 2020, right? We came up with these goals that we wanted to see, the number of baptisms, number of life groups that we wanted to see uh, um, come to fruition. Uh, We broke those down into, you know, what we want to see in 2020, what we wanted to see in the next two to three years, and even what we wanted to see in the next three to five years. And we kind of thought prayed and uh, were hopeful to see what god would do in 2020 uh, and then 2020 rolled around uh, and march of 2020 rolled around and um, we had you know if you're were, if you were not aware of what happened march 2020 right uh, covid started spreading uh, we went into lockdowns and all of us uh, all those plans and expectations kind of got thrown in the back burner um, And we were scrambling to figure out what life and ministry would look like in this new era, in this new situation. And thankful as I look back, as I look at 2020, God brought the necessary pieces and the people for us to be able to continue to live stream, continue to record, but also make service available for folks um, and do ministry even in such a difficult year. But suffice to say, 2020 didn't go as planned for us as elders here at Redeemer. Uh, but I, I can't imagine it went for, um, any, for anybody as planned. And so as you look at Mark 11 this morning, I think it's a, a pertinent story as we think about what the Jews were expecting as we read Mark chapter 11. So if you remember up to the story, Jesus had been ministering across the, uh, across the nation of Israel in Galilee and Jerusalem and all of the towns around uh, Galilee. Um, but in Mark chapter eleven, uh, we we see him coming back into Jerusalem, and so the Jews had waited for this Messiah to come. Uh, it was uh, it was prophesied in, in the Old Testament by the prophets that this Messiah would come. But they had expectations for this Messiah. He wasn't just going to be any, any average dude. Okay, they expected that he would usher in a world that would be politically uh, wonderful. That it would that they would be provide all of their needs would be provided that they all they had to worry about was worshiping God, reading the Torah, studying the Torah, and, and worshiping God. They believed that this, they would be governed by a king messiah who was wise, righteous, just, and politi- politically adept. They didn't want to be under servitude, under foreign powers. That was the last thing on their mind. This, this righteous messiah, uh, this adept political leader, would come uh, rescue them. Suffice to say, even before we read this passage, if you know anything about the Gospels and what Jesus was up to, the Messiah did not meet the expectations of the Jews, even though they waited for such a long time. Because as, you, as we read, we'll see that Jesus showed up in the most anticlimactic form for them, right? For them, uh, they were, that, that was not what they were expecting, and they were confused by how he called himself the Messiah, but they didn't, it didn't match up with what they were expecting of a Messiah. And so we see that they would end up rejecting him, uh, crucify, ultimately crucifying him for claiming that he was the Son of God. Um, and he, you know how that story ends. But that is kind of what we will look at today as we look at how Jesus did not meet the expectations of the Jewish people as he came and revealed himself as the servant king and also the Messiah. So let's look at Mark chapter 11 real quick as we kind of look at this passage that is traditionally called as the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So in Mark chapter 11, Mark records here, verses one through 11, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Mark 11 uh, brings us to a pivotal point in the book of Mark. Uh, because as Jesus, as we as we see the uh, Uh, as we look at his journey of him going down into Jerusalem, as he's descending from the Mount of Olives on this day, he is setting into motion certain events that will climax at the end of the week with his death on the cross and the resurrection from the dead. The events that we're going to look at today took place sometime around Sunday or so. Uh, Scholars estimate it was probably early Sunday afternoon. And by the Friday the fri- afternoon of that Friday, he would be crucified, and by that Sunday morning, before the sun rises, Jesus would have conquered death. Put a de- uh, put, uh, um, excuse me, Jesus would have con- conquered death, hell, and grave by resurrecting from the dead. And so, this the events that we're reading today. Kind of, it's that starting point of what we would call Passion Week. It's um, if you look at uh, Mark, basically all of Mark. It's the shortest gospel. Uh, if you didn't know, uh, one of the earliest Gospels, so uh, it's highly reliable. A lot of scholars uh, look to Mark uh, as one of the earliest and most reliable Gospels um, because of how close it was to Jesus' life. But if you look at how Mark is structured, even as short as it is, starting Mark 11 all the way through 15, all the way through the end of Mark, uh, Mark basically dedicates almost a third of his uh, Gospel account to the Passion Week. Basically, all the events that happens in that seven to eight days is what Mark will spend the rest of his uh, gospel account on. And I think that is, uh, that, that, that is a very um, important for us to pay attention to because if you look at Mark, um, I, Mark is probably not my favorite gospel, but it is probably the most exciting of the gospels because Mark is all about the highlights of the highlights. He just goes from event to event. He's only interested in showing that Jesus is the Son of God and that he's our servant king. So he just moves from miracle to miracle to event to event. And oftentimes, when you see Mark recording details, you're like, hmm, he didn't have the time to write all of the details, but whatever he took time to write must be important. So as as we look at the details that Mark records here in this passage in Mark chapter 11— I think we need to pay attention to it because uh, Mark is not a writer that exaggerates. He is very specific on what he's looking for. So let's look at some of those details that Mark records here. So as you read this account, and as I mentioned, we are in the Passion Week. And uh, during the Passion Week is basically when the Jews would gather together uh, to celebrate the Passover um, in Jerusalem. So uh, think about lots of crowds, lots of celebration. Uh, Jerusalem's um, population was estimated to be around 80,000 people or so, but around the Passover, some estimate that uh, about a million to two million people would gather down in Jerusalem. Now That is a lot of people. I mean, think about uh, that many people in, in such an ancient time gathering together to celebrate uh, the Passover. And so as, G- and so as the, crowd, the crowds were around him, they, they had been probably in the thund- hundreds of thousands, and Jesus picks this time and this place to reveal himself as Israel's true king. And so up to this point, if you remember the ministry of Jesus, Jesus is very careful as he reminds people, hey, don't tell, as once he, when he heals somebody, he says, just go your way, don't tell anybody. And uh, Peter recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah in Mark chapter 8. What does Jesus say? Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but don't tell this to anybody. Keep it quiet. God Jesus had been very meticulous, not that everybody actually obeyed him, but were, was very meticulous in telling people to keep it quiet, keep it silent because he knew his time hadn 't come. but that shifts here in mark chapter eleven. in Mark chapter eleven, Jesus uh, takes a couple of steps that we, we will see here. He, he basically undergoes a couple of um, things that he uh, or undergoes a couple of actions that he, he, that he attempts to do that will no longer hide his true identity. He begins to unveil his true identity to the Jews as their king by fulfilling a series of ancient prophecies. I think that is something else that Mark does a good job of, is pointing out the events that Jesus undertook that reveals or were fulfillments of ancient prophecies. And the first one that I wanted to kind of point out here, I won't have time to go through all of them, but the first one is recorded in Zechariah chapter 9, and verse 9. So hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Zechariah, way before Jesus came, recorded these words. um, Rejoice greatly, and this is Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9, if you're taking notes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is about to fulfill this specific prophecy that uh, Zechariah recorded hundreds of years ago in specific detail. And so Jesus stands on the Mount of Olives. Again, if you, don't, if you are not familiar with the geography, the Mount of Olives is, again, a very popular landmark in the nation of Israel. And Jerusalem is the city that sits uh, below the Mount of Olives. As he is uh, on the mount, making his way into Jerusalem through the Kidron Valley, he sends two of his disciples to go find a donkey. Um, and um, as you look at the account, basically verses 1 through 11, we see that the, Mark is more descriptive about the details of the donkey and the donkey detail sent to uh, obtain it than he is about the journey going into Jerusalem. Right? And I think that, again, is not unusual. It, it's um, very unusual that Mark would pick this detail to emphasize. So let's look at uh, this uh, event surrounding this donkey um, and how Jesus goes about uh, acquiring this donkey. So he he tells the disciples, he sends two of them, they are named, uh, we don't know who, uh, probably because they were not happy about having to go fetch donkey um, and not be part of the procession that was moving into Jerusalem. But he tells them exactly where they will find the donkey and what the people uh, standing around them will tell them. And he gives them specific instructions about the animal and also, he tells them everything that they need to complete the assignment that he had set them out on. And guess what? They find everything as he had told them, uh, as Jesus had said it would be. And so, obviously, the first one of the you know obvious questions that stand out to us here is how did Jesus know? A lot of scholars and Marcus not doesn't tell us how Jesus knows, but a lot of scholars have different. Uh, uh, theories on what they think or speculate. Uh, some say that he arranged this prior to sending the disciples, uh, which is uh, likely. But my um, reading of the, of the text and kind of uh, uh, looking at what, uh, what, what's happening here, I think uh, Jesus is basically using his abilities as a prophet to be able to foretell what is about to happen. This was uh, an ability that God had given the prophets of Israel to be able to tell what was going to come to the people of Israel. And Jesus here, I believe, is exercising those abilities, and for, especially as to the disciples who are, uh, ex, uh, you know, um, carrying out this uh, commandment that G, or this request that Jesus has given them. But I think uh, this morning, I really uh, I want us to pay attention to Jesus' instructions to the disciples. Now what does he say? Notice what he says in verse three. He says, "The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately." The Lord. Has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And that is an amazing statement. So, whatever translation of the word "Lord" that you take, at the very minimal, it is somebody that is a wealthy master, but it can easily mean God or uh, or or Jesus in this case. And so, um, when uh, Jesus tells them, "Tell them that the Lord has need of it," uh, he is not hiding who he is and his identity, right? But I think it's also interesting. And an interesting paradox that the God of the universe that owns and has created everything that we see and know and don't see, that he chooses to partner with us as his creation to fulfill his will, right? Um, And I think that is uh, an amazing, uh, 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 amazing paradox, and I think that brings us to our first point. It only took us 15 minutes. Um, and the first point here is that God chooses to partner with you and me to fulfill his will on earth. And He was rich. Uh, the, I love the passage that uh, Brian read from Philippians. Right? He, was on the thro- uh, he was on the throne of God, but he gave all of that up to come down as a humble servant and became poor for the sake of his own people. If you remember, we just celebrated Easter. Uh, Jesus was born in a borrowed manger. Right? He taught from borrowed boats. He asked Peter if he could use his boats to teach. He borrows from a little boy to feed the multitude. And in a few days, he will be buried in a borrowed tomb. Right? The, the, the Messiah, the king of the universe, the creator of everything, chooses, this, chooses to do this. He could have done it any other way. Right? He could have done it all by himself, executed the plan he had by himself. And if he needed help, he had the angels right? Why does he choose, and it is interesting that he does choose us as his creator, the creation, um, to bring about his will. He chooses to partner and engage with us at, to bring his full, his will to pass on earth. And I, I think th- this is just incredible as, as we look at it and spend time thinking about it. I don't think it's... it's um, just a passing statement or a cliche statement that Mark records here. I think Mark is trying to tell us something that Jesus would have loved for us to keep in mind. And this is both mind-blowing mind and humbling. That God has blessed us with this privilege to play a role in history. God interacts with the people around him to bring about his will. Again, he could have designed it any other way. He could have had, done it any other way, but he chooses to do it this way. When Jesus teaches us that we are the salt of the salt and light of the world that we are his hands and feet, what is he saying? He's reminding us that we are his presence on earth. That we are to be his ambassadors on earth. That as we live in obedience to him, as we die to our own self and live in obedience to him, we are bringing his will to pass. We are bring as we bring the gospel, the good news of the gospel to the lost. What are we doing? We're proclaiming what he has done. And he could have, done, again, done it in more efficient manners than to use sinful, broken people to do that. But this is how he chose to do it. And this seems to not be a one-off event. And so here's a key point I believe that we can take, off, take away as believers. That God has saved you and placed you in a precise place, not by accident, where you work, where you live, the family that you have, I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's a coincidence because I believe God has saved you and put you in those places to be his salt and light, to be his ambassadors in those places, to make an impact in those places, to bring his will to pass in those places. And he's expect he's he's expecting and looking and wanting to interact with you as he takes as he works that out. So whatever you find yourselves in whatever situation you find yourselves, whether it's college, work, uh, you know, wherever you find yourselves, homeschooling, school, whatever, I believe that God is calling us to be faithful in serving Him by carrying out our duties because that is what brings Him glory. But I also would encourage us to be seeking God and be sensitive to what God is asking and requiring of you in those places. Because again, like, like I said, you, you're not there by accident. And He has promised to guide us, and He has promised to lead us as we are willing to serve and bring about His plan. Whether it's loving those around you to sh- or sharing the good news around you, helping your neighbors, loving your family well, I believe God has a plan and has placed you there so that His will will come to pass. And we believe that, as, that to be true even as elders here at Redeemer. We don't believe that uh, Redeemer Church is here by accident. I think God has placed us here uh, to fulfill a specific role in, in Rockwall County and the surrounding co- uh, communities. We believe that God has called us to be salt and light here. That we and, and as we pray and think and um, um, wait on God to see what God is doing, that's what we hope to hear. We expect God to uh, bring people here Uh, that he wanted wanted to be part of it, and that we can impact the communities that we live around. So let's move on. Uh, The second point I think that we can, we can uh, look at here is to look at Jesus' plans as always being bigger than our expectations. So Jesus' plans are always bigger than our expectations. Let's look at their disciples who are returning with the donkey in verse 7 what do they do? They return to Jesus, and what do they do? They were like, I'm not sure if they forgot to bring a saddle, or now remember, this is the colt of a donkey, meaning it's, nobody has um, rode on on this donkey before, so it's probably not trained, Uh, but Jesus, uh, because he's the master, is able to do so, but um, either because they forgot a saddle, or because they, uh, this is, you know, they're like, that's going to be uncomfortable, let's put our coats so they decide to take their coats off and cloaks and put it on the donkey and put it around him on the path, essentially giving him a red carpet treatment. And remember, as we, as we think about, uh, again, you may not be familiar with this, and I was until I kind of was looking at this passage, the, um, the disciples are actually doing here what would have do- been done to an Israelite king who was appointed to be the, a new king. So as soon as the uh, the person was appointed to be a new king, he would have gone through a coronation ceremony, and the coronation ceremony is recorded. in uh, I believe it's Second Kings. We see the people that are around there take their cloaks off, their coats off, and put it on the animal that the king is riding on, or the new king is riding on, and on the ground. So as a sign of respect, as a sign of submission, and as a sign of loyalty, right? And so. Um, I actually don't think the disciples actually knew what they were doing. They were probably just reacting to the need in the moment. But because if you look at John's account of this uh, of this story, uh, it says the disciples didn't get what's going on, the people didn't get what's going on, but the disciples, after the resurrection, looking back, it's like, oh, that was what was happening when we were putting our coats and cloaks on the donkey and on the floor, on the ground, I should say. But here we see Jesus as, uh, you know, the disciples performing the same ritual for Jesus as he begins to reveal himself as the king of Israel. And Jesus climbs on this donkey and they start down this mountain. As the procession approaches Jerusalem, there are a few things that are symbolized here that I think are important for us to keep an eye on. First, uh, it's unusual for people uh, coming for the Passover to be riding an animal. They would have uh, very likely done this by foot. And actually, if you If I'm not mistaken this is probably the only place where we see Jesus riding on an animal right everywhere else he is throughout his ministry has been uh, walking or has been uh, traveling by foot or uh, on a boat that is caught in a storm or sinking or something to that effect right this is probably the only time that we read him riding on a donkey's back as he makes his uh, journey into Jerusalem so this would have been an unusual sight uh, and, and for people that were familiar with the Torah and would have been familiar with Zechariah's writing, would have been like, that is unusual. For um, a rabbi, right? remember, he's not unknown in this area. He had just uh, healed Bartimaeus. If you looked at um, right before the Advent series, we looked at that passage. He had raised Lazarus from the dead in Bethany. Right? So this is, he's not an unknown figure, in, but he's not, maybe not known for... What what he is is un, unfamiliar to the people, but he, him being there is probably not uh, is probably something some bit, probably would have been familiar to the people around him. And so Jesus riding on this donkey, uh, as the servant king walks into or rides into Jerusalem, uh, one com- commentator that I was reading notes that when the Israelite kings showed up for war. Uh, and to conquer a people, they rode in horses and chariots. But when they came in peace, they rode donkeys. And so Jesus, riding on a donkey, not only fulfills the prophecy in Zechariah, but he would have been to the people around, looking around him, be like, okay, that's interesting, as he comes down this uh, path. Now, I think uh, if you're interested in you can look at a parallel passage in Revelation chapter 19, where Jesus comes back for his second coming. What is how does John see uh, Jesus coming back in? If you look at Revelation 19 and verse 11, how does he come back? Well, John says, I looked at the clouds and I see what a white horse and somebody in white garments coming down. And so when Jesus comes back to wage war on sin and to complete it, he will come down in a horse. That's what the Israelites were hoping for on this day. But on this day, he comes as a servant king. Uh, and if so, I think it 's worth looking at the reactions of what the people were expecting let's let 's look at a couple of groups let 's look at the Jewish people that have been that, that would have been witnessing what was happening the Jew, uh, religious leaders, the Pharisees, how they would have seen this, and the Roman soldiers who would have been uh, guarding the temple or or been, been around there uh, we don 't see the accounts of the Pharisees and the Romans in this passage in mark 's account, but I would encourage you to read the parallel passages in the other synoptic gospels. Uh, in John and, uh, Matthew, and uh, Matthew and Luke, uh, where we see that the Pharisees, uh, let's look at them first. The Pharisees say, tell Jesus, why are these people proclaiming you? What did they say? Hosanna. They call him the king after David. The, the Pharisees are like, what are they doing? Why are they proclaiming you as king? Ask them to be quiet. What did Jesus say? Jesus says, if they keep quiet... What the rocks and the stones they will they will come alive and shout my praises. That didn't go over so well for the Pharisees. What about the Romans? Again, we don't we don't see it in this passage. But if you look at the context of how Rome, what a Roman triumphal procession would have looked like, it would have been massive. Chariots and horses and elephants would have been in this in this procession. They would have brought their prisoners of war in chains. Um, uh, through the, through the uh, triumph, as part of the triumphal journey. Uh, before, uh, before we had Ezra, it was kind of a last trip before we had our kids. Uh, Lindsay was like, let's do a trip uh, before we have kids because we're probably not going to leave in a little while, so let's go do this trip. So we, we got the chance to go visit Rome. And if you go to Rome today uh, and go to the kind of what they call the Roman Forum, you'll notice these huge arches that are called triumphal arches, and each of them, one of each of them are built... Uh, celebrating or commemorating a, a, a war that was won by the Romans. Uh, and, and so the, this was a huge, for the Romans, this would have been a pathetic sight to watch a rabbi wa- coming down on a donkey, his legs probably dragging because the animal is so short, right? Would have been, and people still claiming him to be king. But the Romans probably would have rolled their eyes and be like, just another crazy dude. Okay. Let's look, so that, that I think it's instructive to us as we look at uh, Jesus did not meet the Pharisees' expectations, the Romans' expectations of what a triumphal entry would have looked like. And lastly, the Jewish people, and the, these were the oppressed people and they were severely suffering under the Romans. Okay? Um, not only, They didn't find um, relief in their civic life under the Romans, neither did they find any relief in the temple under the, under the religious authorities. That, were, that basically were looking to take advantage of them, as we will see in, in next week's passage. So they were looking for somebody to free them, free them from their oppression, come and save us, and that's what Hosanna stands for. Hosanna basically translates, save us. And so the people knew that they needed saving, but watching Jesus ride on a donkey didn't quite strike them as sufficiently a strong king. Uh, Jesus did not, again, meet their expectations either. Because really, as I think about it and as we look at this passage, he was about to do something that was bigger than any of their expectations. Because Jesus' plans are always bigger than our expectations. So here's the second takeaway as we ponder and as we consider the various reactions. What is our reaction to Jesus as king? Is it one possibly of maybe apathy? I grew up in the church. I knew this. I know this thing. I'm, I've been taught this. I know I'm familiar. I've read Bible stories. Even, even Ezra, at, um, we've been trying to do this Advent series, has been reading through the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible. And um, it doesn't matter what story we read, he knows that the right answer to our questions is Jesus. Uh, for him, he says, baby Jesus. You know, baby Jesus. That's basically his answer, right? Uh, and While that's, you know, it's heartwarming, uh, it's uh, not sufficient for us to see Jesus as just something cute and cuddly, okay? So I think it's, it's, it's dangerous at times that sometimes our reaction can be apathetic because we're familiar and we know this. It could be one of disappointment, right? 2020 has not exactly been the best of years, right? Uh, maybe your expectations were not met, loss of uh, a loved one, loss of a job, loss of a child, infertility, whatever it may be, loss of relationships as we've all gone um, into quarantine and social distancing. Or maybe disdain, because this idea of a king over our lives is not something weakens stomach. And the cost of what it requires to follow Jesus might be too high than we're willing to pay. But I think it's worth looking at and reflecting on what our reactions are to this idea of Jesus as king of our lives. And what about the expectations that we hold about what Jesus is, who Jesus is, what he, what he needs from us, what we need from him? While Jesus uh, is our loving Father, I think sometimes our expectations of Him and about Him can hold us back from worshiping Him for who He truly is. I think it can prevent us from interacting with Jesus and celebrating Him as King. So what expectations are holding us back, or holding you back and me back, from surrendering wholly to Jesus and trusting Him for the outcome? Whatever the, whatever the circumstance is. The Jews were hoping that he would change their circumstances. But Jesus came to save. Uh, Jesus', uh, Jesus expectations was much bigger than that. As you listen to this morning, do you need to surrender those reactions to Jesus, those expectations to Jesus? Because, again, he's bigger and more able than our, ex- our expectations and circumstances. And believe it or not, even 2020 did not catch him by surprise. For The third point, as we kind of come to wrap-up here, let's look at the end of pas- after this passage, at verse 11. What do we see here? That Jesus is, ma- is now at the temple. Okay. We see the proclamations from the crowds, that they recognize Jesus as their king, or at the very least, at least a prophet, a popular prophet. He's doing all these things that fulfill these prophecies. But I think they were mistaken to see that Jesus came to save them from their oppressors. Because as you can see, as Jesus has this large procession. There's people uh, pr- you know, praising him, proclaiming him. And then it just fizzles out. The crowds disperse. Because didn't, Jesus didn't meet their expectations. He was not the king that they were hoping for. The crowds had lost interest. And they went about their own business. They didn't really need anything from Jesus at the temple. They knew what was expected of them at the temple. They were going to do their sacrifices. The priests were going to do their thing. But they didn't, they didn't expect what Jesus would no, do next. Because as we, as we will look at la, next week, and I won't go too much in, or steal much of Shannon's thunder, but as you look at this, um, the following passages or the rest of Mark 11, uh, Jesus begins first... By cleansing the temple. That's not what the Jews were expecting. They were expecting for him to take care of the Romans. Those other people. But Jesus begins at his own house. Now it had to be strange, right? He shows up at the temple. The structure exists to worship him. To celebrate him. And there's people there just going about their business. Offering sacrifices. uh, The priests doing their rituals. And he's standing there, and people are ignorant of who is in their midst, who is in the temple. He saw that they really had no place for him in their temple. And so he left that day, but will come back and start cleaning house. So this is not what the crowds were expecting. Now, they were on Jesus' side. I mean, they they saw him for who he is. But they didn't suspect themselves as the sick ones that needed to be rescued. And I think that's actually something that struck me as we look at uh, this passage. An important question for us to reflect on. Sometimes we as people of God who call on Jesus as our Lord and Savior see the problem that Jesus needs to fix as outside ourselves, right, in our circumstances, in other people. And if we're not careful, we can mistakenly think that just because we belong to Jesus, that the problems are all with others over there. It probably goes back to the apathy or the, the, the false confidence that we have in Jesus. Because it really, a lot of times, if we're not careful, the problems can be in the other person, the supporters of the other political party, our neighbors, our co-workers, our spouse, our kids, our job, or sometimes even other believers who are not like us or who don't look like us. We can fail to recognize that Jesus died for our sinfulness first. And we have to be careful to pay attention to what god is doing in our own hearts in our own minds in our own lives what sense do we need to confess this morning what relationships do we need to reconcile where do we need to be more faithful how do we need to address the shortcomings in our own lives i think the same thing goes for our our church as a, as a body too what does jesus see when he comes to our church he's here today believe it or not What does he see does he see people who come looking for him or does he see people just going through the motions i'm here check the box no i talked to a few people check the box i paid my tithe check the box or does he see people who are worshiping him and praising him or does he just see people just caught up in rituals what does jesus see when he sees our heart my heart and your heart does he see an earnest worshiper or does he see that you're really lost confused does he see that you need to come home this morning does he see that all is not well in your heart and that you need a savior king it is critical that we do not neglect the state of our own hearts and souls as we approach jesus because he's primarily interested in who we are becoming who we are and who we are becoming before he's interested in our neighbor and I think that is uh, something that I think uh, we need to pay attention to because as we've looked at the third point, Jesus came to save us from our own selves. As we close this morning, I want to just briefly mention, if Jesus is this king, what does his kingdom look like? What, is this Jesus, what does this kingdom look like? So here's my last point. King Jesus came to preach entry into his kingdom. Um, as Americans, uh, we're not fond of kings and kingdoms, right? We fought a war over it, uh, lots of it. Um, we like watching them on TV. I have friends who like watching the royal family on TV and follow everything about them and read all the tabloids uh, about them. Uh, apparently, there is something that you know that that is attractive. Uh, but we like following their lives. We don't want just we just don't want them to rule over our lives, right? basically the the summary of it. Um, But I grew up in a country, some of you might know, I grew up in a country called Oman. Uh, It's in the Middle East. And Oman actually has a a king, or has a king, uh, the king that was there when I lived there, passed away. But uh, they had a king and they called him a sultan. And basically he did what he wanted. The whole country belonged to him. He did what he wanted. Um, He was a fairly peaceful king. He did kill his father to be the king. But other than that, you know things for the for the most part were were uh, peaceful Um, but I so but I think it's sometimes hard for us to uh, wrap our minds around this whole idea of kingdom and I think uh, Brian mentioned earlier about this idea of that we have kingdoms too as people we have our own kingdoms and for the ladies queendoms if that's uh, more appropriate and so what does this kingdom involve Basically, your kingdom is everything that you have control over. Your kingdom is everything that you have say over. It involves your body, your resources, time, family. Same thing with God. What does God's kingdom look like? God's kingdom is everything that he has control over. A lot of times I think people have the wrong understanding that when we come to Jesus, when we surrender our lives to Jesus, that we're giving up our kingdom so we can live in his kingdom. I don't think that's actually what happens. When we confess God as our King and Lord and Savior, what we're doing is we're surrendering or submitting our kingdom and bringing it under His kingdom. Where we rule our kingdoms the way He would have ruled it if He owned our kingdoms or if He were us. We don't live our lives just unattached and just the way we want, but rather we live by His guidance, by His Holy Spirit and under His uh, rule. We learn to manage our resources, steward our bodies, our money, time, our relationships, all under his guidance. That's what it means to live in God's kingdom. We rely on him for the outcomes. So as you think about, um, you know, a as provider in this kingdom, what does that mean? What, What do we mean when we say God is our provider? It means that while my job is what pays my salary, at the end of the day, whether I have my job or not, God is my provider. Why? Because I live in His economy. I live in His kingdom. And He has promised to care for me. So I don't have to um, do anything that goes against His commandments. Because whatever the outcome, God is in charge. And that is what I, th- I believe it means to live on, in God's kingdom and for you to exercise your kingdom under him, under his guidance. There's so much more I can say about this, um, but I don't have time to do so I will end with this. Even as people in Jesus' day did not see Jesus as the real king, as believers, we can sometimes be distracted by our own circumstances, by our own expectations. Right? It can cloud our judgment of who, who, who Jesus is. Sometimes we only call Jesus as king for namesake, or that's because of what the Bible says, so that's the right Sunday school answer. But in reality, and all for all practical purposes, we might just be living our lives the way we want to, running it the way we want to, without submission to how God wants to rule our lives. So let's, let's fight against this tendency. Let's not allow our expectations and circumstances to cloud who Jesus is as our true And servant king let's pray father we thank you for this morning Uh, thank you for this story thank you for the journey that you start um, that we read about this morning as you make your way down into jerusalem you will be tested tried and confirmed as the true lamb that will be sacrificed on friday Just as uh, the Passover lamb would have been picked on Sunday, you, you walk into Jerusalem as the eternal lamb. And we are grateful as believers for that sacrifice, for that journey. We pray this morning that our hearts are not apathetic, are not discontent, are not um, disappointed or Have any disdain towards you as king but rather we happily and joyfully proclaim you as king of our lives and that we surrender everything that we are and uh, everything that we will become to you and under your guidance we trust that you are a good and loving king and that in in you we can trust wholly our lives we pray that uh, for the folks that have, that don't know you as king, that they uh, would be, oh, these words would convict them, that it would uh, plant seeds, would be watered, that people's eyes will be turned to you, even as my eyes have been turned to you as I've prepared for this passage. I pray for your grace, for the folks that will listen to this sermon later, your presence will be with them, that the award will go forth and accomplish what it was sent for. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.